Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. Then the apostles and elders, together with the whole church in Jerusalem, chose delegates, and they sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on this decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Bersabbas, and Silas. This is the letter they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It is written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you with their teaching, but we did not send them. So we decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending, in Ju- we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm to what we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. You may be seated. It's good to see everybody today. We, uh, we started a while back now, back in August, we've been taking the fall to uh, look at, study, learn from the stories of the first Christians. We've paused a few times along the way to, to do some other things, but um, what we've really been trying to figure out is what was it about the first Christians that caused something remarkable to happen, that these first 120 Christians became a few more hundred than thousand than hundred thousand than million to where there's now two and a half billion Christians on the earth today. And it's growing by 42 and a half million every year. Like this all started with these first 120. And so what did they have that we don't have? What did they do that we don't do? And we've been trying to learn these stories from the New Testament book of Acts. It's called Acts because it's the actions of the first Christians. And so you might assume that as we've been working through these stories now for quite a while, that we would get to a story like today and this would be a story that we could skip over. Because the other stories have been dramatic. There's been uh, radical conversions and miracles and, and, and signs and wonders and uh, just really um, incredible stories, dramatic stories. And then we get to a story like today and it's the first church council meeting. 
You know, it's like a board meeting. And so as we compare to the other stories that we've read, we come to this one and we think, why would we want to take a whole Sunday to talk about a church council meeting? And here's a better question. Why would Luke, who wrote these stories of these first Christians, why would he think it would be important enough to document and to give almost a whole chapter to, to a, a church board meeting? Why would that matter? And why does it matter to, to you and me trying to live the Christian life now? Well, I want to explain that to you. And if you'll give me just a few moments, I want to give you a little bit of a history lesson. If you'll stay with me here, um, we're going to get down in the weeds for a moment. And then I want to show you how, how this matters to, to you and me. But if you've been here through many of these messages at all, you know that the Christian church started after Jesus was resurrected with 120 people in a single city. The name of that city uh, is Jerusalem. And for the first 10 or 11 chapters of these stories in the book of Acts, all the stories, all the Christians, all the conversions take place in this single city of Jerusalem. And all of the people who are becoming Christians, who are being converted to Christianity, are coming out of uh, their Jewish faith. Last week, Pastor Joe gave us the first story where that was not happening, that someone non-Jewish, the Bible would call them a Gentile, uh, became a Christian. But up until that point, all of the conversions and all the Christians, it's all happening in this city of, of Jerusalem. And so because of it all being in the same place and because of all these people kind of having a very similar background, they all had kind of the same cultural and uh, cultural habits and, and cultural beliefs. So it would be like, just to kind of help us understand this, it would, it would be as, I want you to imagine for a second, if all the Christians in the world lived in Paducah, Kentucky, all right? Think about this for a second with me. If all the Christians in the world lived in Paducah, Kentucky, there would certainly be, you know, some differences. Everybody wouldn't be exactly the same. There would also be a lot of similarities. It would be safe to assume that most of them would be white. It would be safe to assume that most of them probably grew up around religion. Many of them probably politically would lean Republican or conservative in their moral beliefs. And so while there would be some disagreements and differences, many of the issues would be settled simply because they all came from the same culture. Does that make sense to everybody? And so while that would be a good thing potentially because everybody would kind of be starting from the same page, it also is dangerous because it would be very easy to assume that things that are uh, cultural traditions and beliefs, it would be easy to blur the lines and to make those Christian beliefs when they're actually not. They're just cultural beliefs. Does that make sense to everybody? And so that's what was happening in Jerusalem. But now Christianity is spreading into different cities and regions, and all different kinds of people are getting saved. And they're coming from different backgrounds and different religions and different, different economic classes and different moral worldviews. So it'd be like if Christianity was only in Paducah, but then they started getting word that Christians were getting saved in San Francisco and Seattle and New York. Now, what seemed so easy because 
culturally and traditionally, everything just kind of made sense. Now they're having to figure out how Christianity makes sense to a group of people who do not have the same culture and traditions as the Jewish people in Jerusalem. There's different moral worldviews. And so you can imagine that this causes a lot of controversy about what it would mean to be a Christian because there was a lot of assumptions being made about what it meant to be a Christian. And it just so happened to look a lot like being Jewish and living in Jerusalem. But now that's not the case anymore. And so these new Christians are not part of that tradition and they're very confused. And the advice they're getting is coming from people who are from the culture and tradition in Jerusalem. And these new Christians who are not a part of that culture and tradition want to know what are they supposed to do? What are they allowed to do? And what are they not allowed to do? What does it really mean to be a Christian? And what does it not mean? What's essential and what's not essential? And so the church has its first really important meeting to clarify things. And they have to decide what is absolutely essential and non-negotiable and what else is just preference. And it doesn't mean it's bad and it doesn't mean that it's not wise or good advice, but it does mean that as Christianity is now being packaged and shipped around the world, what are the absolute essentials? What are the requirements and what are just preferences? So this is what's happening. That's why they're having the meeting. To which may cause you to wonder, great, thanks for the history lesson, but what does this have to do with me? It's 2023, I gotta go to work tomorrow, I got family coming in for Thanksgiving, I'm busy. Why should I care about this cultural preference essential thing that's going on 2,000 years ago in, in the Middle East? Well, it matters because we're still dealing with this today. Some of you this week will probably go to a family Thanksgiving and you're gonna face this same tension because there's gonna be people who are sitting at the table with you who claim to be Christian and you claim to be Christian, but you are going to disagree on so many things. You're both Christians, but they're going to disagree with you politically or with, about things with morality, or about things with traditions. Some of your family's gonna judge you for some of the things that you say, or how much you have to drink, or you're gonna judge them for the things that they say, or how much they have to drink, or how they spend their money, or the nice clothes that they're wearing, or how they parent their kids. And somewhere in all of that, you're gonna think, but I thought they were a Christian. And somewhere in all of their assessing you, they're going to think, but I thought they were a Christian. Some of your family members are going to judge you because you attend this church. And then you're going to wonder how in the world they attend their church because you've been there and you can't understand why anybody would go there. <laughs> right? So this is the same tension that we're facing. So who's right? Who's the real Christian at the table? Who, who, who's disqualified? What does God really care about? What stuff really matters? 
This is what they needed to know. And many of you are sitting here today wondering this too. And, and it's one of the things that I love about this church because there's, there's so many different backgrounds in this room. I love that. I had the opportunity this week to talk with an organization that we're partnering with, and they just asked me to tell the story of the church and how we got to this place. And it gave me another chance to talk about how much I love how many different demographics and backgrounds there are. And I have to admit to you that this is not the kind of church that I imagined I would pastor when I felt called to be a pastor. I'm a Bible Belt church kid, you know, and I thought I would pastor somewhere down in the deep south with a bunch of church kids and just, you know, yell at them and tell them how wrong they are about stuff. Like, I kind of thought that's what I would do. And then God moves us up to Louisville, and, and I start meeting all these Catholics who start coming to church. I had never met a Catholic. I didn't know. I had no idea, you know, and, and all these different political leanings and uh, all these different cultural experiences. And I remember the first time I heard that all the Christians in the church were going to the horse track. I thought, what is happening? <laughs> I called my dad. I said, dad, you're not going to believe it. They're going to a horse track. What's going on? And I, and I know I say Bible Belt and Deep South, and some of you are like, well, you're still in Kentucky. But like, from where I came from, I feel like I'm in New York City. I mean, I... I we, I'm a Yankee. I mean, we are way up here, you know, and, and I love it. I th I'm so thankful to God. I go down south. Matter of fact, we're going to go to uh, down south for the, for the holidays, and like three days in, like I just start breaking out. Like I just, <laughs> I can't, I listen to other pastors talking about what they're dealing with in their churches, and I'm just like, oh, thank you, God. I mean, everybody deals with their own things. So I'm just like, oh, thank you, Jesus, you know, and I love that about our church. And so there are some of you here, and um, you grew up in a very religious, uh, religious church or family. Maybe you were part of a very conservative, fundamentalist place. And so now as an adult, you're trying to follow Jesus, but you have all this guilt from your childhood. And your conscience is always bothering you. And you don't know if it's God's voice in your head convicting you or your parents' or your grandparents' voice in your head convicting you. And you're not sure what's allowed and what stuff is just rules from your past. And you don't want to feel bad all the time, but you always are feeling guilty and bad. And you think God's always mad at you. And you're wondering, like, what, what, what really matters? What's the, what's, the, what's the essential? But then others of you... You didn't grow up religious at all, and you've just started following Jesus, and now you're wondering what's supposed to change because you've never been in a place like this or been around people like this. And what about your career? And what about your sex life? And what about your friends? And what about your money? And what are you allowed to do on the weekends? And you're, you're wondering, like, what do I got to do now? What's, what, what really matters? Many of you grew up Catholic. Many of you grew up Pentecostal. A lot of you grew up just Christmas and Easter church attenders. And so this issue that they are facing matters to you and me still today because we have to know what is essential to following Jesus and what stuff is just preference and tradition and upbringing. Okay? So hopefully now you can see why Luke 
would think that this is a really important meeting for you and I to talk about because this meeting set the stage for Christianity to spread across every nation, culture, and tradition to make sure that it would, quote unquote, work wherever it went. And it still matters to you and me. So here's what I'm gonna do for the time that I have left. I wanna, I'm gonna point out three things from this story. Really kind of, I'm, I'm gonna kind of summarize what they said to the people, their, their kind of findings from their meeting. And it was three things, if I was paraphrasing it, I would say this, that the church leaders after having this meeting said to all the Christians and to you and me that if you're living the Christian life, if you're trying to live the Christian life, then it really matters who you listen to, it matters what you believe, and it matters how you act. This is what they, I mean, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but in essence, they send back word to the Christians in Antioch, if you wanna live the Christian life, if you wanna be a Christian, it really matters who you listen to, it really matters what you believe, and it really matters how you act. So let's look at each one of these, okay? The first thing is that if you wanna live the Christian life, it matters who you listen to. It matters who you listen to. Everything that you believe in your life you believe either because of experience or authority. Experience or authority. Experience just means you've experienced it. You know that a stove is hot because you touched it one time. You know that the law of gravity is true because you fell from a somewhere high enough to break your arm, right? And so you, you believe these things are true because you have experienced it, and that's a good thing. But you also believe all kinds of other things that you've never experienced, like you believe that there's a place called Africa, but you've never been to Africa. So how do you know it's really there? You're like, come on, Jason, that's silly. No, I'm serious. How do you know it's there? Well, you believe that it's there because you believe the people who told you it's there. Maybe it was a teacher or a textbook or a map maker. And enough people have told you that it's there, enough people who have experienced it have told you that it's there, that you believe that it's there. But you can't be certain that it's there because you've never been there. So you believe it on authority. So authority just means that you believe it because you believe the people who believe it. And as you begin to think about all the things in your life that you believe, you will realize that most of the things that you believe, you believe based on authority. That's, that's why you believe them. And, and so Christianity involves both of these. It, it involves experience and authority. You have to have an experience in order to be a Christian. You have to have a moment when the eyes of your heart are open and you experience Jesus and, and you're converted. But most of the things that you believe about Christianity, you believe on authority. You believe it because it's in the Bible or you believe it because your pastor says it or because your friend says it or because your parents said it or, or, or whatever it is. And so in this way, Christianity is not just a religion, but it's also a tradition. We do things and believe things because for thousands of years, Christians have believed and done certain things. And we're not making it up every 25 years. It goes back thousands of years. And so when you become a Christian, you're not just winging it on the spot. You become a part of a religion that has some established beliefs and actions. And so our story today is the perfect example of believing something on authority of believing something because you believe the people who believe it. 
In this meeting that they're having are some heavy hitters. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he's there. Peter, who was the most visible and vocal disciple, he's there. James, the half-brother of Jesus, he's there. He's the first pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So we're one short of like the Mount Rushmore of apostles who are at this meeting. These are not the interns. The most important and authoritative Christians of the time are at this meeting to decide what is essential and what is is not essential. And so the Christians in Antioch want to know which rules they have to obey and which ones they don't. Because remember, Christianity came out of the Jewish faith. So does that mean that non-Jewish people who are becoming Christians have to follow all of the 613 laws from the Old Testament? And remember, there's no Bible yet. There's no church membership manual. There's no hope you, okay? They are just trying to figure it out by listening to and asking their leaders. Don't miss that. They don't know what to do and they're not sure what to believe and so they ask their leaders. And this may be the most counterintuitive thing I say today because we live in a society that no longer trusts our leaders. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. And any decision that offends us or inconveniences us is instantly unfair or ignorant. And if we're ever disappointed, we believe that we've been done wrong. But this is a problem because Christianity places a really high value on trusting and listening to your leaders. Even though in the entire history of Christianity, even going all the way back to, you know, Eli's sons at the temple, Leaders have been immoral and stupid and perverted and greedy. Christianity does not ask you to trust your leaders because they have an impeccable record. Quite the opposite. But still, God says the way that he establishes the church and wants to help you live the Christian life is to trust and to follow your leaders. And so I love that um, these new Christians come to their leaders and they say, we don't know what to do and we need you to tell us and how many of the Old Testament things are we supposed to follow? And, all that. and I love that the, the response of the three most important authoritative Christians in the world, Peter, Paul, and James. They don't say, great question. We know exactly what you need to hear and we're certain of it so you have nothing to worry about. Instead, they say in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In essence, they are saying, we prayed about it. We talked about it. We know that the people who talked about it would, would give their life for this. And so we cannot be absolutely certain because you can never be absolutely certain. But to the best of our ability, we feel like that this is what God approves. And that's really all you can ever ask for from your leaders. You know, we get asked a lot around here, People will say to me, like, are you absolutely certain? Are you absolutely sure God told you to, to move churches? Are you absolutely certain we're supposed to merge? Are you absolutely certain we're supposed to, to, to raise $3 million? Are you absolutely certain we're supposed to change the name of the church? Are you sure God told you? And I always say the same thing, like, of course not. And I absolutely certain. Really? All you can do is be as sure as you can be. Trust God. 
pray, talk about it with trusted people. Same thing is true for your life too, by the way, taking a job, marrying someone. I did my due diligence. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I talked about it. I felt like it seemed good to me and to the Holy Spirit. And so leaders aren't perfect and they can't tell the future. They try to hear from God. But at some point, you're going to have to decide who do you trust? Because you got to trust somebody. Will you trust the Bible? Will you trust the church? Will you trust your pastors? You got to trust somebody. And who you listen to matters. But let me say one more thing about this. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian and you're like, yeah, not me. I'm not trusting the Bible. I'm not trusting a pastor. I'm not trusting the church. It's bogus. I ain't doing it. Okay. I respect that. I appreciate your honesty. Okay. But I want to just make sure to point out that if that's the stance that you decide to take and I respect it, be careful that you don't assume that you are leaving Christianity because you can't buy into it, but that what you will buy into instead of Christianity was something that you came up with all on your own. What you will believe instead of Christianity, you will still believe on authority. You're still gonna believe it because someone you believe someone who believes it. And instead of trusting God and entrusting the church and entrusting a pastor, you're going to trust people who don't believe in God, don't love the church, and aren't for pastors. But it's not going to be because you're so brilliant, you came up with your whole worldview on your own. You're going to believe it on authority. So the question is, who are you going to give authority to guide your life? Either God, the church, leaders, or not God, not the church, and not leaders, but your trust will be in something. Does that make sense to everybody? So this is the first thing we learned from this meeting is that if we're trying to live the Christian life, it matters who you listen to. It matters who you listen to. But let's look at the next thing because the leaders also say to these Christians, it matters who you believe or it matters what you believe. Beliefs matter. There are right and wrong beliefs. But here again, we bump up against our society because Our society would say that all religions are pretty much the same. As long as it makes you better and nicer, if we're all just more loving, that's the point. We should just be more loving. And we should, by the way. Your faith should not make you more of a jerk. But all religions are not the same. And this entire meeting was about doctrine. You know what that word is? It just means it's a a set of beliefs, established beliefs. And so there was a meeting while all these miracles are happening and healings are happening and all of these remarkable things are happening. They also feel that it is important to have a meeting about beliefs. To figure out what's the right beliefs and to figure out what are the wrong beliefs. And even as I say that, some of you like are feeling allergic to that. Because you don't want Christianity to feel exclusive. We should just you know, let anybody in. However, like they just, they just need to get to God. And I love your heart. And I, and I love that that's the desire that you have. But I want to be super clear. Christianity is not exclusive. It is available to everyone. Everyone can be a Christian. Anyone can be a Christian. But to be a Christian means something. And you don't have to believe what Christians believe. But then that would mean that you are not believing Christian beliefs. Are you with me? And I'm not trying to like wordplay you here. I'm just saying 
that the belief that Christianity shouldn't be exclusive is an exclusive belief. Are you with me? So, so let's don't unfairly try to make Christianity unlike everything else in life. We want anyone and everyone, and God wants anyone and everyone to be a part of Christianity. But to be a Christian means you believe certain things. Can I give you an example? If I were to ask you today, do you believe racism is wrong? I hope everyone in the room would say, yes, I believe racism is wrong. Because that would be the right answer. But if I was to say to you, why do you believe racism is wrong? You would have to give me a belief. You couldn't just give me a feeling, so I feel like it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Or maybe you'd say, because it's mean, okay? Why is it mean? Or you'd say, well, it's unfair, okay? Well, why is it unfair? You say, well, Jason, stop being, you're just, you're just nitpicking. Everybody knows it's mean and unfair. That's not true. Not everyone in the world believes that racism is mean and unfair. They believe something different than you. So why do you believe that racism is wrong? Is it just because you think it is? But see, for a Christian, our, our actions and our beliefs are attached to something. And so the reason a Christian believes that racism is wrong is because we believe that every human being is made in the image of God. And that every human life has equal value no matter the color of the skin or the language or the economic status. And so that's why we believe every human being should be treated with dignity is because of our belief that they are made in the image of God. This is why beliefs matter. This is just one example of why beliefs matter. And so I think we have to be careful that we don't just want Christianity to be this like ethereal, metaphysical, uh, you know, uh, trance-like, you know, hippie thing. It's just, it's just goodness and love and peace and mercy. And it's just, I just, you know, I saw a bird fly and it was just like a sign from God. And listen, I'm not saying that you can't have those experiences too. But we ground our faith in knowledge and beliefs and information. C.S. Lewis wrote this kind of obscure paper called Man and Rabbit where he was, trying to, um, he was trying to answer the question, can you be a good person without being a Christian? And he used this example. It was just a really brilliant example. He said, he was trying to explain why knowledge matters. And he said, imagine that you came uh, across this, this person on the street who had reached the point of starvation. Like they, were, they had literally, their body had gone into starvation. Lewis says, if you had no medical knowledge, you would assume that the best thing that you could do for them is to stuff them with a large meal. But if you did, you'd kill them because you're trying to help, but you don't have the knowledge. And he said Christianity is much of the same way, that many of the things that we think we should do, we, we, we actually are uninformed. And so sometimes we push back against the information and the doctrine and the theology. And we're like, oh, I ain't got time for all that. I just want to experience God. I do too. But the more that I know him and the more that I love him and the more that I learn about him and the more that, that he's that much more beautiful. I can worship him that much more and I don't have to become so superstitious. It can be grounded in something. I could talk about it all day, but I ain't got time. 
So to try to live the Christian life without right beliefs will sabotage your efforts. And so I'm gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna talk about the three things that they said, but before they gave the three things they said, they explained that Christianity was attached to something. It was attached to the grace of God and the life of Jesus Christ. We're not just winging this thing. It's built on something. So it matters what you believe. It matters who you listen to and it matters who you believe, but Let's look at one more thing, and this is really the whole point of the meeting. They said, when it comes to living the Christian life, it matters how you act. These really kind of build on themselves that who you listen to and what you believe is really ultimately going to determine the things that you do. And so these non-Jewish Christians from Antioch wanted to know if they had to obey all of the 613 Old Testament laws. And the men were especially concerned with one law in particular— the law that said you had to be circumcised. So these middle-aged men are becoming Christians and Jewish Christians are saying like, congratulations, here's your green bag and here's a free Bible and you're gonna have to get circumcised. So as you can imagine, they're like, we'd like a second opinion. We'd like a second opinion. And so they asked their leaders, they ask their leaders. And um, they come to this meeting and they're trying to define essential beliefs. This is the issue on the table is, is, okay, we're all Jewish. Paul, Peter, James, we're all Jewish. And this whole time we kind of thought to be Christian meant to be Jewish. But now because of new converts, and because we're seeing the Holy Spirit being poured out, and we're seeing, you know, and Peter had the vision, and, and Paul and feels called, to the, we're seeing now that a lot of these cultural things, traditions, are not necessarily essential Christian things, they're just cultural things, and that's not going to work in Antioch and New York and San Francisco, so what, 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 do they absolutely have to know and do? Well, they obviously have to have an experience with Jesus Christ. But how do, they, how do they live the Christian life? And they narrowed it down to three. Can you imagine? They took all of the laws and then they examined the life of Jesus and what they knew about his teaching and they narrowed it down to three rules, three guidelines that every Christian, no matter where you live, but especially those who were kind of cross-pollinating with Jews and non-Jews, they had three rules. Here's the three rules. They said you can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols because that's, you know, just like the Christians would bring animal sacrifices, all these different religions would bring meat to the poles and the gold statues, and then they would, you know, eat that meat. Can't do that anymore. You can't eat meat uh, that's been strangled. Animals have been strangled can't do that. And then you, you got to be sexually pure. You can't be sexually immoral. To which we would say like, why these three? I mean, of all the things that they could focus on, why these three? Which is a good question. And here's a better question. It's 2023. Are these still the three? Is this, is this the essential things for what it means to be a Christian? Well, the answer is kind of yes and no. There, there are all kinds of creeds and beliefs that, that ground our faith, you know, in our orthodoxy. And so it is more than just these three. There are more essentials to the Christian faith than these three. 
But what these, what these leaders were trying to establish still matters to you and me today. And so let me just walk you through these three. The first reason they said that you said you can't have meat that's been sacrificed to idols is because they wanted to make sure that Christians had absolutely no association with idol worship. Even God told Moses to tell the people, don't worship any other gods but me. And so they wanted, they're not, we don't want to play with the gray area. We're not going to, how long was it there at the temple? What temple was it? What idol was it? You know, we're not going to, we're not going to nuance any of this stuff. Just if you're trying to live the Christian life, you stay as far away from idol worship as possible. We're not going to try to like balance two masters. Okay. Idol worship is definitely something we still do, but that's a whole sermon for another time. In essence, they're just saying, we're not going to try to kind of do the world stuff and God's stuff. We're just going to try to abstain from all of that. That still applies to you and me. Still applies to you and me. The second thing they said about the, the, the strangled animals is really interesting. Because of all the, the rules and the laws in the Old Testament, there were a few that were highly offensive to Jewish people. And the kind of food that you eat was highly offensive to Jewish people. If you were here last week for Pastor Joe's message, you know what that big deal that was. And so they did something with this rule. In essence, what they said was, listen, even though technically you can eat any kind of meat, all meat is clean, God already told Peter that. We're asking you out of respect for your brothers and sisters in Christ because we don't want to make them angry or offend them or confuse them. We're asking you out of respect for your brothers and sisters to abstain from this so that we can be as united as we can be in this. Now, meat that's strangled, animals that are strangled, that's not our issue. But there are all kinds of issues that we disagree on that the leaders would be saying to you and me, listen, let's don't die on that hill. Let's don't die on that hill, okay? And out of respect and love for your brothers and sisters, let's try to abstain from things that we know are highly offensive to them. Can you do it? Sure. Is God mad? Absolutely not. But it's so personal to these people. We're asking you out of love and respect to abstain from those things. Well, that still matters to you and me doesn't it? Right? And then the last rule was about sexual purity. Which is interesting because that's the only one that feels personal to us. Like as long as we would have kept it on the meat, got it. And then they just take a left-hand turn and they're like, by the way, sex life. And when it comes to the topic of sex, Christians get a bad reputation. And skeptics and cynics and hostile people will say, like, why are Christians so obsessed with people's sex life? And why does the church always want to talk about sex? And just to clarify, I, I don't want to talk about sex all the time. It's the only question I get asked. Seriously. When people contact our church, they never ask, like, hey, what's your church's stance on gluttony? Never been asked that question. Nobody says, how does your church feel about fair trade? No. 
every single time. You know what it's about? Sex, sexuality, every time. And so then they say, it's all you want to talk about. It's all you want to talk about. I only want to talk about it when you ask, and you ask all the time. So, I don't know how you're going to feel about what I'm about to tell you, but the Bible has a lot to say about sex. A lot. And why wouldn't it? Because sex has been the driving force in the world from the beginning. Do you know how many wars have been started because of sex? Do you know how many people have been hurt? How many people have been killed because of sex? And so I want you to think for a moment about how significant this is. That when the three most important Christian leaders in the beginning got together to decide what is absolutely essential for the new Christians to follow, they decided no idols, try not to offend your Christian brothers and sisters by the food that you eat, and prioritize the purity of your sex life. Sex was that important. So vital that the leaders said, wherever it goes, wherever Christianity goes, whatever time period, whatever country, whatever nation, whatever people, wherever it goes, a Christian sex life matters. Think about that. Think about that. So I think we got to talk about it. What does the Bible mean when it says sexual immorality? Abstain. They said abstain from sexual immorality. What does that mean? Well, in its simplest form, it means any sex outside of a husband and a wife in marriage. Now, it means more than that, but I ain't got time to get into all that. So for the purposes of today, these leaders are saying that if you are trying to live the Christian life, you no longer get to have sex however, whenever, and with whoever you want to. And again, I don't want to just like try to overplay the importance of this, but just consider for a moment that when they were deciding where Christians anywhere in the world would be converted, they felt like it was important enough to say, by the way, now that you're following Jesus, you don't get to have sex with whoever, wherever, whenever you want anymore. It's that important. To which someone would say, give me a break. Why does God even care who I love? Why does God care who I sleep with? Well, remember how I said it matters what you believe? See, Christians believe, one of the fundamental Christian beliefs that goes back thousands of years is that we believe that sex is only meant to happen inside of a marriage commitment. Maybe you believe that, maybe you don't. And if I were to say to you, well, why do you or don't you believe that? You would give me a belief based on either the way you feel or the authority of someone else. But let me tell you why Christians believe that sex happens between a man and a woman in marriage. We believe it because the thing that we give authority to, which is the scripture, tells us that our bodies do not belong to us, but they belong to God. 
This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual morality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Which, by the way, almost any serious scholar would tell you the guy who's writing this was single and celibate his entire life. You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. It's based on a belief. We're not just making it up because we're trying to be cruel. It's based on a belief that your body does not belong to you. My body does not belong to me. And this is not just sex, by the way, but everyone in the room who has ever had sex knows that what Paul is saying here is true, that no other sin affects the body like this one does. And so God's not trying to tease you. He's not trying to make you miserable or lonely. He loves you. And he doesn't want you to keep sinning against your body. It's not your body. It's his body. And so let me ask you a question. This is a hard question. I'm going mean, to just give you a heads up. It's a hard question. For those of us in the room who have been sexually immoral, which is a very intimidating way of saying, those of us in the room who have participated in any kind of sex outside of God's design, that's pretty much all of us, so don't feel bad. Let me ask you this question. For those of us who have done that, would you say that sex has made your life more complicated or less? Oh, I didn't know you were actually going to answer. I... <laughs> First service was like, okay, good, more, great. I agree, more. That would have been troubling if you just said less, but we know where the prudes are. They're in the first service. Um, yeah, of course, more. I'm gonna ask you another question, but don't answer this one out loud, okay? Would you say that sex outside of the way God designed it has made you a more honest person or a less honest person with your partners? Less. Yeah, less. So let's think about this for a second. Your heavenly father who loves you, who wants what's best for you, who wants to bless you with every good and perfect gift, why in the world would he want your life to be more complicated and less honest? He wouldn't. And as hard as it is to fathom and as difficult as it is to accept, 2,000 years ago, really starting with Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 and the apostles and the council. For thousands of years. Has the church always gotten it right? No. Have its leaders been perverted and been worse than the world sometimes? Absolutely. But from the beginning, Jesus, the apostles, the council said, if you're going to follow Jesus, wherever you are, whenever you live, and whoever you are, your sex life plays a major role 
in trying to follow Jesus Christ. And so what they would say to them and what they said to them and what they would say to you and me is, stop being sexually immoral. So I thought all week, how do I transition from sex to communion? You're going to like this. You know, the Bible says that um, our bodies don't belong to us. And I was thinking about how Jesus Christ became a human being. Regardless of what novelists say, he did not have sex. The Bible says he faced temptation in every way. He, his, he felt every temptation that we felt, yet he did not sin. But even Jesus came knowing and believing that his body did not belong to him, but that his body belonged to God. You know how I know? Because he came and he gave his body and he sacrificed it for you and me. So when you come forward today to the table and you take the bread and you dip it in the juice, you can be reminded today that as impossible as it feels for you to believe that your body doesn't belong to you and that God would want you to make these hard decisions because, because your body belongs to him, you could at least be reminded that Jesus Christ, your savior, felt that same thing. And he decided, you know what? My body doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you. And I'm gonna lay it down so that humanity could have a relationship with God. So I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna have the opportunity to take communion, sing some worship songs together. Let's do that. God.